everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk. I would like to apologize in advance if I start coughing. Uh, I'm at the tail end of a... Of a um, allergy attack, um, but God is good. Um, it's so good to be to be up here and to share the word of God that He put on my heart uh, with all of you, with uh, with our church this morning. Um, you know, when I when I first came to America. Um, I knew that I was going to be here for a while, so um, I wanted to learn everything that I could about this country and about this culture. And uh, someone suggested that the quickest way that I can do that is to watch commercials. (laughs) And they said, this person, they were also immigrants, and they said, uh, or he said, um, if you watch commercials, then you will understand what is important for, uh, for, for the culture, for these people, what is a priority in their lives. So I became obsessed with commercials. So during uh, a movie or a, a game, or everybody wanted to mute the commercials, and I wanted to watch the commercials, because I wanted to see what was important for, for Americans. But what intrigued me even more in, in the television world um, in America were the super commercials, those infomercials, especially those that promised to uh, teach people how to uh, be wealthy and happy and confident. And uh, for $1,000 a seminar, they guaranteed to enlighten you and they guaranteed to educate you in uh, different areas of your life where you might lack. Unleash the power within and uh, business mastery and personal power and all that. And many people were willing and are, will- are willing today to pay for a chance to hear what these gurus have to teach them so they can learn from them. But my desire for us this morning is to learn not from someone whose teachings and wisdom will be obsolete 10 to 20 years from now, but from a man whose teachings remain fresh and continue to enrich people even today 2,000 years later, and that man is Paul of Tarsus, Paul of Tarsus. And for the next month, Emily and I will um, look into the book of Philippians, writing a letter that Paul wrote, and we can see what we can learn from this old letter that could help us even today. So if you'd like to stand with me, please, and let's read together God's Word written by Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6. And there are Bibles in the back if you need to get one um, in the back of the room. We also have it on the screen. 
Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the gospel, the good news about Christ, from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Amen. You may be seated. So before we get into the letter um, to the Philippians, I would like us to look briefly at the background of the city of Philippi, of um, how Paul planted this church in this city of Philippi. And those of you who know your geography, um, you know that Philippi is located in the northern part of Greece, northeastern part of Greece, and you can go there even today, and it's a beautiful place. And the city got its name from Philip Macedon, who conquered the city around 360 BC. He was the father of Alexander the Great. But then Rome came to power. And after Caesar's death, he didn't have any heirs. So a lot of rivals um, came to the throne. And Octavian, Caesar's nephew, and Mark Antony, they wanted to continue in the direction that Rome was going as a republic. But then there were other rivals who actually wanted to change Rome and to change the empire. And the decisive battle between these two armies took place in this little region of Philippi. Octavian and Mark Antony won the battle, and as a reward for the victory that saved the republic, Octavian gives Philippi the title of Roman colony, which meant that overnight, these people in Philippi, these Greeks, actually received all the rights and the privileges of a Roman citizen, which was immense at that time. And here is where Paul comes to minister, and he comes to plant this church, this first church on European soil. But what is unique about this church in Philippi is that actually Paul had no plans to plant a church there. After his first missionary journey, uh, he and Barnabas returned to Antioch. Antioch was a church that sent them as missionaries. But after a while, Paul feels that fervor in his heart again, and he says, I want to go back on the mission field. So he and Barnabas uh, prepare for the second missionary journey uh, trip. And Barnabas wants to take with him John Mark, a young man who actually deserted them on the first missionary journey. He wants to give John Mark a second chance. Now Barnabas was the kind of man that he was, he was a good man. He was called the, the son of encouragement. But he saw potential in people, even people that have failed, even people that others maybe did not see a lot of potential in. So Barnabas says to Paul, I want John Mark back on our team. But Paul, a man who also stands by his principles, he would not hear of it. He deserted us in the first journey. I, I cannot take him back. This work is too important. I cannot surround myself with people that I cannot trust. 
with people that I don't know if they're going to be here the next day. John Mark is not coming with us. And the Bible says that their argument was so great that they decided to punch each other. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I need to see if you paid attention. They decided to part ways. Paul and Barnabas, two men of God who could not get along. And the problem was not that one was right and one was wrong, but that each one of them had different gifts through which they operated in ministry. Paul was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to, to emperors, to kings, to governing authorities. He was gifted to preach and to teach, and he had a prophetic ministry. And part of that gifting was a certain toughness that he, he needed to speak truth to power, to confront sin, to be direct. And we see that, if you remember in Acts, there is a story in the first missionary journey when he's with Barnabas, and he meets this magician called Elymas. And this guy is trying to distract people from hearing Paul preaching the gospel. So this man that Paul just uh, met um, is distracting him. And Paul looks at him and says to him in front of everybody, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's a man that he just met. Now, he had no problem operating in those gifts. Now, I imagine... Barnabas was probably mortified when he heard that. Now, in the church, we have all different gifts. We all have different gifts. We all have different personalities. Uh, and there are people who have certain gifts to discern the spirits, to discern the spirits, to identify sin in a congregation, to confront sin, like Paul. And then there are others with a gift of mercy. Like, like Barnabas, the gift of encouragement, who probably would have spoken softly to Elymas and tell him about his sin and tell him that he needs to repent and convince him and bring him to Jesus. Now, for Paul, that was a waste of time. You son of the devil. He had no time for him. Now, Paul, in his gifting, he saw Satan's schemes behind this man's actions, and he called him out. So when Paul and Barnabas look at the situation with John Mark, they each respond according to their gifts, according to their personalities and the gift that God put in them. Paul is faithful to his prophetic gift. He needs people around him that he can trust, that, that are supportive. And Barnabas is faithful to his gift of encouragement and of mercy. And they, they both apply their gifts in the situation with John Mark. Unfortunately, their partnership had to suffer because of that. And I think there is a lesson for us to learn here because in the church, um, as I said, we all have different gifts and different personalities. And to some, God gives this gift to rightly divide the word of God, to preach it without, without compromise, to discern what needs to be um, corrected and, and repented of in the body of Christ. And that is a tough, tough job. So to balance that, God gives also in his church people with a gift of mercy and their specialty is to seek those who, who 
are uh, the lost sheep who um, are limping in the faith, who fell away, and to lift them and to give them a second chance. So I think the lesson for us today is to recognize that we all have different strengths and not one spiritual gift, gift is better than another. And to extend grace to each other as we minister, as we operate in our gifts, even if we maybe would do that particular ministry differently, just to extend grace, as long as it is done in love and humility and with the wisdom of God. Now, please don't call each other son of the devil. That's, that's not what we want. But extend grace and, and, um, to people who are ministering, maybe differently than we are. So this is how Paul's secondary journey or second journey uh, begins with Paul and Barnabas, two of God's greatest ministers, arguing, separating, but we believe they remained friends. So Paul takes Silas with him instead. So they go to the churches in Asia Minor is where Paul actually planted some churches in, in his first journey. But when they arrived there, the Bible says that they could not minister there. The Spirit of God would not allow them, and door after door after door was closed to them. And I imagine Paul was probably thinking in, in, his, in his humanity, like all of us would, could this be because of my argument with Barnabas? That I'm not having success, that God is closing doors. So all he does is pray. And for weeks, there's, there's confusion, and heaven feels like lead, and then no prayer is penetrating. Have you ever felt that way? But finally, the team receives direction where to go next. And Paul sees a man in a vision who says, come to Macedonia and help us. Help us. So he wakes up the team and says, great news. God has spoken. We're going to Macedonia. So they head to Macedonia and... In Macedonia, they go to this city of Philippi. And when they arrive there, Paul's church uh, or planting strategy was always go to a big synagogue where the word of God is preached every Sabbath, where people are, in, are awaiting for the coming of the Messiah, where they are learning that a Savior will be coming and all the prophecies of, of coming Messiah, people are in expectation. And in that synagogue, that is the best soil for you to preach the gospel and, and uh, plant the seed there first. So when Paul arrives in Philippi, he's looking for a synagogue. And he asks around, where's the synagogue? And all he gets is shrugged shoulders. What's that? What's a synagogue? And the team looks at each other and they wonder, how do we even start a ministry without a synagogue? What do we do when what worked in the past in ministry doesn't work anymore? For a few days, they do nothing but pray. And, and some of them probably even wondered if the vision to come to Macedonia was even from God. Because it was clear that the method that God used in the past is not going to work in Philippi. Anna, our oldest daughter, left uh, this morning for mission to Guatemala. And uh, one piece of advice that I gave her yesterday, 
um, was expect surprises. Expect that things are not always going to go as you planned. But in those surprises and the unexpected is where God steps in and he will give you victory. Expect the unexpected. And, and those of you who go on mission trips and, and love to go to, um, to different mission trips, you know that uh, they're all different and uh, you have to be open to what God has for you in a new place. And if there ever was a church plant with a weak beginning, Without much promise, it was this church in Philippi. Instead of finding a synagogue, as usual, full of people in expectation of the Messiah, Paul finds, finds a, a handful of women praying by the river. And he preaches the gospel to them. And Paul's first convert on the European soil is this woman named Lydia. But for Paul, if this was the door that God opened, he says, I'm going through it. Even if it doesn't look like it looked before. So Paul shares the gospel with her and her face lights up and she receives the word of God. She asks to be baptized and she asks the team and, and Paul to come to, to her house. And her house becomes the first Christian church on the European continent. And for the next 2,000 years. Europe remains the cradle of Christianity. Do not ever despise weak beginnings, especially in ministry. God has this predilection to, to use weak vessels, to use small beginnings, seemingly insignificant people to do his most amazing work in the world. And to this church, 10 or so years later, Paul writes this letter of joy, thanksgiving from a Roman prison. And he tells them why they should be filled with joy in all circumstances. And in every chapter, on every page, we see the word joy or rejoicing in this entire letter. And the reason for this joy, Paul says, is because you have the assurance of your salvation in a world that is uncertain, Paul says, you have something that is solid under your feet. I'm sure of this, he says. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. How important it is to have that assurance that what God began in us, he will finish the assurance that our soul is certain in the hands of the Son of God, that nothing can separate us from his love. Because as humans, we know that we are some of the most fragile beings on, uh, in this universe, that a virus that can only be seen under a microscope can kill us. The smallest change in the, in the laws of the universe would make our life impossible to continue. And because of that fragility, what we seek most in this life is certainty. Something that can assure us that tomorrow will again be a good day. Or tomorrow will be better than today. So we buy life insurance and health insurance and, and car insurance. And there is nothing wrong with those. But even with all that insurance in the world, somehow we still know 
that life is not certain. The things that were once sure, investment, financial, they do not guarantee us a, a comfortable old age anymore. We know that at the smallest variation of circumstances, our life can spin out of control. So we're willing to spend money on anything that can give us some degree of certainty. Some guarantee that we are covered, that our families are covered if something happens to us. That we're secure. But Paul says, there is something, there is an assurance that you have that is more important in your life than, than your life insurance and than your health insurance. And that is the, ins the assurance of your salvation. And those, only those who are wise and understand the infinite value of their soul ask themselves seriously, what is the future of my soul? Because all the money in the world, all the insurance in the world does not take away the uneasiness that we feel. Can I know for sure that I'm saved? I grew up in an Eastern Orthodox country. And if you went to an Orthodox priest and you said to him, Father, I know that my soul is more valuable than the whole world. Please tell me, how do I know for sure that I'm saved? The priest will probably tell you that the first thing you need to do is believe in God, believe in Jesus, believe in the ordinances of the church, Take communion, be baptized. And after that, he will probably hand you a, a list with, of, of rules with how to live a virtuous life. And you take that list and you say, Father, if I do all this, then I can be sure that I'm saved. Then is my soul insured. And do you know what his answer will be my son, my daughter. Nobody really knows. Only God knows. All we can do is try. In fact, some churches call the assurance, what we call the assurance of salvation, they call it the sin of presumption. If you dare to believe that your salvation is certain, if you assume that you will go to heaven, they say that alone disqualifies you from going to heaven. Because no one really knows, they say. Only God at the final judgment will make that call if you're in or you're out. And how tragic it's not to be able to relax, not to be able to enjoy today and enjoy your family and enjoy your, wealth, your health and, and your children, your house, whatever you have. Because, because you, you cannot really know what happens when you die. I don't know about you, but my soul would be tormented not knowing. What do you mean I cannot know if I belong to Jesus or not? What do you mean I cannot know if, if, if something happens and I die that, that my soul is certain in the hands of the Son of God? There's nothing that can cause us more anxiety than this lack of certainty about our eternity. And there is nothing that can give us more joy and peace than to know that our future is guaranteed and that our soul and, 
is safe in the hands of a loving God. So from the beginning of this letter, Paul wants the Philippians to know the reason why they should be joyful. He who began a good work in you will finish it, will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. It's tragic to be sincere Christians and not have the joy and the assurance of salvation, not to have the certainty that even if life is hard, even if bad things happen, I still have a reason to sing and to say with confidence, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That nothing, no death, no life, no angels, no demons, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds the Philippians, that church, of the certainty that they have in Jesus Christ. I am persuaded, don't you dare doubt this, that he who began the work in you will continue it. Our salvation is certain because the initiator of our salvation is not ourselves, is not somebody else, but is God. Remember the woman that Paul met by the river in Philippi who accepted the Lord? The Bible says that one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The initiator was not Lydia, but God. God who wrote her name in the book of life. God who stopped Paul and Silas from going to Asia Minor and sent them to, to go to Philippi instead because he planned to confront Lydia with the gospel and to open her heart. God begins the good work. And Paul says, that's why you are certain that your salvation is solid in the hands of God, not in your own hands. Because if salvation was the result of my own deeds, of my own, it was based, if salvation was based on what I felt every single day, the salvation would be built on the most shifting and, and, and unstable sand. Because one day, we all know that, we feel like doing God's will, one day, we don't feel like doing God's will. It's like Martin Luther, the German monk said, monk said, do I love God? You ask me if I love God. Sometimes I hate him because I can't trust my feelings. It is not about feelings. It is about the truth that God started this work in us and he will complete it. And how great it is that God initiated our salvation, but he not only initiated our salvation, but, but the final outcome is also uh, dependent on God. God promises to bring our salvation to completion and realize the image of his son in us. So not only our salvation, but also our sanctification, how we grow in the faith is God's work through his spirit in us. And that's why our soul can have peace. Our soul can have peace because God is the architect of our lives and what he starts, he finishes. And this is important for us as a church because one of the lies of the enemy is that because we still sin, we are not saved. And many of us, 
maybe are told by people that look at us and say, look, they say, look at you, look how you live. What do you mean you are a Christian? You belong to Jesus. You have the assurance of salvation. They see our inconsistencies and they see our, our mistakes and, and shortcomings and they mock us. Paul says, he who began the good work will complete it. We're not completed yet. But on that day, when Jesus Christ comes back, we will be made perfect. And Jesus will present us to the Father as this beautiful bride without any spot, without any wrinkle, a beauty that the universe has never seen, full of glory and purity. And that is good news for us. And this is what we remember when we take communion every Sunday. That Jesus who knew no sin made himself sin for us so that we become the righteousness and the beauty of God. The beautiful bride waiting for a bridegroom. Assured of her salvation. Assured of her sanctification. Assured of her glorification. So this morning, I would like to ask you a question, the only question that will matter a hundred years from now. Is your eternity certain in the hands of the God of the Bible? God will not save us against our will. He wants our full participation. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you called him into your heart and said, Lord, please come, help me to live every day for you so that when I die, I know that it is well with my soul. So today I would like to invite you during the worship, when we have our, our prayer uh, ministers, and if you're not sure that you're saved, if you have the doubt would like to pray for you and pray with you. If you never accepted Jesus, please come. Today is the day. It's the most important decision of your life. Or maybe if you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, please also come. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.